Blog Talk Radio. How you doing? Doing great. And we are here with very, very special guest John Land. We had him on Rollerfester interview, but now we got him live talking about his latest Caitlin Strong book called Strong Light of Day. And we almost had a radio show off the air, which is what we normally do with John before we got <laughs> on the air. But let's walk him out here right now. Hey John, thank you of course so much for coming on. How you doing? Hey, it's great to be here. I thought we were on the air before. I just used all my best material. I got nothing left. <laughs> all right. Good I got nothing. Everybody. I got you. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> George Costanza. There we go. So hey, so John, it's great to be able to talk to you. Um, we, you know, first time we've talked to you since uh, Thriller Fest. So it's great to have you back on again. And of course, your latest book, Strong Light of Day, is out. So let's just jump right into it. I guess with the first question. And now that this is book seven in the series, correct? Is this is seven. That is correct. Lucky um, seven. Wow. Then why, why don't you let us know what what you got in store for uh, Caitlin Strong fans in this book? Okay, this is this I, I got to tell you, uh, and it's not just me talking now. That I'm coming on a couple weeks, uh, one week after publication, so there's been a lot of reviews, a lot of response, and, and I, it's really off the charts in a positive direction. Um, Caitlin, this time out, is on the trail of what links the disappearance of 30 high school kids from a field trip and with cattle that have been picked clean to the bone across the state of Texas. The fun of a thriller is setting up things which apparently are totally random and and disparate and then showing how they connect. And in this case, how they connect dates all the way back to the Cold War and a then Soviet Union plot to take down the United States once and for all. So, you know, and, and the interesting thing there is when I conceived that, and when I wrote the book, it was before uh, Vladimir Putin lost his mind entirely, and all of a sudden the Cold War got hot again, and here it is, and we're in Syria looking at a repeat of the Cuban Missile Crisis, or or the you know the famous U two shoot down of Gary Powers. So sometimes you get lucky, or sometimes you you look at trends as a thriller writer, and you try to anticipate where the bad guys are coming from next. Um, and in this case, I, I think I got a little bit lucky and a little bit good, uh, maybe a little more lucky, and I'll take that. But the idea that the Russians are, are, are kind of the scary guys out there again, they're, they're the 800-pound the gorilla in the room, they're, they're the monster under the bed that goes bump in the night, that really helps because what you're going to see in, in Strong Light of Day are the ultra-right wing of Russia, even to the right of Putin, who have, cons- who have resurrected this plot thanks to a series of random occurrences, which, of course, somehow is connected to those disappearing kids <laughs> and that cattle that's been picked clean to the bone. Don't you love thrillers? I mean, you oh, know, yeah. Don't you just love these kind of books? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, so, John, I have to ask you, though, um, because you have kids in jeopardy, essentially, how did you balance 
not offending people, if you know what I mean, especially with the, you know all the shootings and things going on. Wow, uh, that is one of the best questions I've ever been asked. And the um, the the best way to answer it. Let me answer it two ways. Structurally, the kids disappear before you get to know any of them. You don't meet them. Um, they're gone. They be in that sense. They're m- more of a plot point, and nothing bad is ultimately you. You know, people who know me and know thrillers, and they know if you, if you know movies by Hit, Alfred Hitchcock, you know if a kid gets kidnapped in an Alfred Hitchcock movie, he's coming home safe at the end. Other things bad are going to happen in between, but once you put the bomb in the room, the bomb can't mm-hmm. go off. So that's the whole point of using this as a plot point. Uh, and uh, actually, it's three points. The second point here is one of the kids who event, who uh, who initially goes missing turns up to be found. Uh, you know, two boys, you know, walk out of the woods late after ev- all the other kids have disappeared. One of those kids is Caitlin's surrogate son, the son of her reformed outlaw boyfriend, Court Wesley Masters. Uh, so there is an immediate um, emotional response. So in that sense, I'm being very manipulative in two different ways. I'm using disappearing kids as a plot point, and one of them who is found very quickly is um, uh, it it turns out to have the the, you know his his disappearance and his existence forms the emotional core of the book. To your point, I think the exploitation of children or women in any kind of book is very very dangerous. There, there are lines to your to what you're saying that a writer cannot or should not, in my mind, cross. And I know mm-hmm. it's it's interesting you say this because I've had a number of discussions with people about The Walking Dead, one of my favorite shows, and it's iconic. And I often compare the treatment of these two boys in the Caitlin Strong series, Dylan and Luke. Dylan, the older boy who's now in college, and Luke who's still in high school. All they've been through as a result of the actions of Caitlin and their father, Court Wesley Masters, is kind of like what Chandler Riggs, you know, the Carl character, uh, Rick's son in The Walking Dead goes through. And the point I wanted to raise that goes to your point is when there were a lot of rumors on the Internet last year that Carl was going to die in the last episode of the season. And I I said to people who said that to me, and these are Internet geeks, you know, and you know who who are on the who who troll the internet and believe these rumors. I said it's never going to happen, and I'll tell you why. Because after what they put that boy through with the delivery of his sister and the death of his mother, you can't kill him a second time. You've already killed him emotionally, so you can't. You lose your audience when you push them over the edge, and that's what The Walking Dead would have done if they had killed Carl. It's what Game of Thrones has come very close to doing in the last episode of this past season with, with a character uh, who may or may not be gone forever. We don't know. But this is the key thing. On the one hand, you can't push the audience beyond their ability except what you're doing, the suspension of disbelief. And two, from a societal standpoint, um, you're, the, the idea of children in jeopardy, the idea of children endangered, is something that was much more prevalent and popular in fiction before it became reality, before the school shootings, before um, 
you know, the random street crime and, and, and you know, and, and just the number of kids who die every day of, for, any, for a myriad of reasons. So it's an excellent point, and I think all thriller writers especially have to always keep it in mind. Yeah, there's got to be that time when you want to you, you wanna trick the reader, you want to fast-pace the reader, you want to shock the reader, but it has to be a responsible way to do it. Um, and I think that that's extremely important. Too. Like you said, by killing him maybe in the show, it would have been like that jump-the-shark moment where it's like, well, now the show's completely off the rails and it's no longer that tight-knit thing anymore. And I think that's important. And I think that's what you kind of have to do when you're and, writing a series. You're seven and to books that and to that point, um, the villain of this book is being described as my greatest villain ever, Calum Dane, who's a billionaire oilman who, in Texas who unwittingly releases something which can destroy the economy in, of the United States and kill thousands of people. Uh, but the thing that makes him a true villain is his inability to control his emotions. The first time you meet him, he literally beats... Uh, a, one, a young man who crosses him, he beats him to death with his own prosthetic, the kid's own prosthetic leg. Now, the reason that scene is not over the top compared to the, <laughs> all these kids, and that sounds crazy, but the fact is, is that when you read it, it is within the context of the character's sensibility, his moral darkness that defines him. And this is the scene that we keep coming back to. And it's not just what he does is that he doesn't have any regrets or guilt or compunction or remorse. He's a true sociopath. And even though this kid has crossed him, he crosses a line, but it's not exploitive to go back to what Jeff's question raised. It's not exploitive because it goes to, it's very personal. It goes to the character of the villain's capacity um, to commit incredible violence, which has cost him his family, including a son that he's no longer allowed any contact with, which, of course, becomes a crucial plot point before the end of the book. Well, and I would also argue that part of the reason he works so well as a villain is, in addition to him being a true sociopath, he also is kind of clueless when it comes to what he's really doing. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And in fact, he is basically, and this is in, uh, th- this is in the author's notes, so it's not, I'm not giving anything away by saying this, but in fact, it has to do with his petrochemical um, companies, which have created a genetic um, organism, which is supposed to kill insects that that eat crops. Dane is a manipulative businessman who's come to the conclusion, who who understands that 25% of all crops are destroyed by pests and by um, uh, by, by by pests and by you know sometimes not even by weather, just 25% uh, you know by things that aren't killed by normal pesticides and stuff like that. So he figures out if I can kill all the pests, then. I'm going to be able to sell this, this this organic, genetically produced pesticide for an ungodly amount of money because basically it has the potential to wipe out hunger worldwide. That sounds like a benevolent thing in the, in the right hands. In, in Dane's hands, in Caleb Dane's hands, all it is is a way for him to become a trillionaire. Basically, that's what he's thinking of. He doesn't care that, um, that it's doing un- 
you know, that once it starts doing really bad things to people, all he cares about is covering it up, covering his own butt. That's what he cares about in this book, and that's what sets off the maelstrom of of disasters across the state of Texas that is going to spread everywhere in the country if, if Caitlin doesn't succeed. Well, now that you're in the book seven here, and like we said, uh, with the new Caitlin Strong series, it's called Strong Light of Day. When when you're sitting down and conceptualizing a book and a series as it's going forward, do you make sure you're like, oh, you know what, I gotta, I want to make sure that I get this in there, or I want to make sure that I get this in there. Is there something that you do to make sure that you keep it fresh from six to seven, from five to seven, and, and how it keeps moving forward? Is that something that you think about every time? I think about it all the time because keeping a series fresh emotionally and stru- as well as structurally is why Lee Child is still out there after 20 books with, with, with Jack Reacher, why Dave Roby's show in 20-plus books with James Lee Burke feels as fresh or as, and as vital as ever. Um, but I'm not sure it's something that I consciously do as much as rely on my instincts, take me in the right direction. I don't want to force it. Um, Although all thriller writers write to some kind of formula, that's why people keep coming back to us. What I ask myself, John, is Mm -hmm. what is the emotional crisis confronting the characters that changes them, makes them different people than they were when the book began? And if you do that in every book the way real life is, then you keep the series fresh emotionally, um, which is which then overcomes the fact that you're using that you're relying on your traditional formula, um, and you have enough changes. Now, in the in Strong Light of Day, um, the reason why Luke, Caitlin's younger surrogate son, is is off in the woods with another boy, is a crucial plot point. Not in fact, you know, it, it becomes crucial in two different ways. Not only is it a crucial plot point. Why they're in the woods is also a crucial emotional core of the book. It forms the emotional core of the book. And how that subplot affects Caitlin and Luke's father, Court Wesley, and his brother Dylan and the other characters becomes the emotional basis of the book. And I call it a crisis when, in fact, it's really just a revelation. It's something a lot of families have to deal with. But... I want to raise my thrillers to your point. I want to raise my thrillers beyond the norm. I want to write books. I want to write books that 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 stand the test of time in terms of the emotional development and 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 challenges that the characters face. And I mentioned The Walking Dead before. The Walking Dead is a great show. Not the zombies are secondary in many ways to what makes The Walking Dead a great show. What makes The Walking Dead a great show are the characters and their development and their struggles and and what they go through and how it changes them or how it doesn't change them. So this is why when I read a thriller that I consider to be great, it's because the characters and their emotional struggles and their emotional structure of the book has moved and affected me in a way that that makes me come back. My favorite example of this in the past year or so is Dr. Sleep, Stephen King's long-awaited oh, yeah. sequel to The Shining. I was so... Forget all the stuff that's going on. To Jeff's point earlier, you have the ultimate book about child abuse. You have 
children as victims done in a sense. There's one scene in that book, the baseball boy scene, which might be the hardest scene, to, one of the hardest scenes to read without question I've ever come across. But at the heart of that book, you have a, a reformed alcoholic who used to be the little boy, Danny Torrance, who's now a mess of an adult trying to find redemption. And how he finds that redemption by helping a little girl who's just like him, except a lot more powerful. The emotional resonance of that is what kept me in cold sweats and gave me literally gave me nightmares. Because even though the book features an, an incredible group of villains called the True Knot, those villains would be ineffective if you didn't care so much about the heroes. And that's the whole point about these stories, about Caitlin Strong. She goes up against really bad people, trying or, or inadvertently causing great harm to you and I. And if Caitlin doesn't succeed, they will. If she doesn't stop them, there will be no one to stop them. And that's what makes a great thriller. A great thriller isn't about a character trying to figure out what happened. A great thriller is about a character trying to prevent something terrible from happening. Um, let me uh, ask about series, because um, we've had this discussion, um, John and myself. <laughs> how do you how do you deter someone? Well, I guess let, let me rephrase this. It's the seventh <laughs> book in the it's the seventh book in the series. Yes. People will. Some people might say, "Well, it's the seventh book in the series. I don't want to pick this up and read this because there's six previous." What do you do? to keep the fans engaged, but at the same time make it appealing for the first-time reader? That is a, another great question. And basically, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm throwing you softball. You have to. I mean, he's not, you're, you're both on rolls tonight, uh, as always. Uh, you have to write every book like it's a standalone. As if the person reading it for the first, reading it, reading number seven in the series is reading a book, it doesn't know it's a series. So they're just picking it up and they go, oh, this is a series. I want to get all the others. Uh, that is the first goal of any book in, in the series that I'm creating. On the other hand, one of the things that the ebook revolution has created um, is an even more fervent desire. Remember, no books go out of print anymore. Books used to go out of print, so people couldn't read them in order because they weren't available anymore. But you couldn't get right. them, except yeah. you unless you went to the library or something. Yeah, or the library, and and not all libraries don't carry every book ever ever written, unfortunately. No, because no. of the digital revolution, every book of mine is now in print digitally, so people can go back and start and read them in the beginning. And I would, I in my world, as a writer. Of course, I want the newest book to do super well. But I also understand that people who become aware of Strong Light of Day, and they say, oh my God, that looks really good. It's a series, but I want to start at the beginning. I don't discourage them from doing that, because hardcore thriller readers love reading series in order. And in the case of the Caitlin Strong books, because the characters evolve, because the characters change and because the characters um, are, are, you know, are not the same, they, they, they age. 
They age chronologically. They don't stay the same like a lot of thriller heroes do. It can be <laughs> right. more fun. I won't, I won't discourage someone who wants to read the series in order. And in fact, I tell people, you'll enjoy the series you, the, to, in, to, to, to maximize your enjoyment of the series. Read the books in order because here's what I feel, Jeff. Here's the, here's the best answer to your question. If you read any book in this series, you're going to read all the ones that came before and you're going to read all the ones that came after. I honestly believe that. So as a writer, if, if someone wants to take a chance on a, on a, less, on a, on a lower-priced book because they don't want to invest you know, $25.99, they, they'd rather get it online for $2.99 at a discount price um, you know, and, then re, and start with the beating of the series, you know, I'd re, I think that's great because I have enough confidence in Caitlin and enough confidence in the, in the strength of these stories that anyone who does that or, or the bulk of people who do that are going to read them all. I, I would actually I mean, agree with that. Yeah, I mean, that makes yeah. sense. I mean, I do know the, the only thing that I'm going to counteract that, that devil's advocate is it's very difficult and I feel very bad for authors nowadays, which is why, you know, Jeff and I and the magazine and everything, we try to do so much to try to help because you try to now, with the electronic age, you have a million more authors that seem to come out every other year, and now you're fighting all of them instead of fighting just the ones that have the printed books. So how do you now have to change your marketing strategy, the things that you do, in order to get above all of that noise? And to still stay strong, <laughs> no pun intended, and to keep, <laughs> no pun- keep going because that's because that's the struggle that I see happening in a lot of authors today is people only have so much money and you, they're only going to spend it on you know and they but they have so many more choices now. As, you know, and what, and the, the, uh, this is going to sound cliche, but it all starts with writing a book that's a lot that's that's better than than that that the quality raises the story mm-hmm. above the norm and separates it, the quality alone. Because if you don't have a good product, it doesn't matter what else you do. But if you have a really good product, and this isn't just books, this is anything. I mean, how many cars get produced, but there are always some that sell a lot better than others, a lot of times because they're better. And that's, what, that's where it starts. The second way it moves on is you, you have to t- do everything within your control as an author um, to get as much coverage as you can legitimate coverage, not buying reviews on Amazon or not having all your friends. I have to tell you, nothing to me is more ridiculous, and you see it a lot less now. But when an, a book drops on Tuesday at, at midnight and at 10 a.m. There are, there are 500 reviews, 500 yeah. people didn't buy that book and read it overnight and drop reviews that are all one paragraph long and are all five stars. So mm-hmm. to me, it's got to be legitimate. You know, I, I, you've got to go at, you've got to cultivate res- relationships with critics and periodicals and reviewers and people and bloggers and people who have relationships that, that, who have trusted relationship with readers. So when they recommend something and say, this is really good, this is a cut above the norm, um, because the struggle that I face, that so many other writers face, is I am not a brand. You don't hear my name and go, oh, my God, John Land, his new book's coming out. You hear Lee Child, and you think, oh, wow, Lee Child, Sandra Brown, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Steve Berry, Jim Rollins. Um, Jim, well, Jim Patterson, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of redundant because um, <laughs> right. he does it so often. Um, but when you're not a brand, you're constantly struggling to find new ways 
to build to build yourself up into a brand. You find different ways to you, you, you look for different ways or different routes to grab the brass ring. Let me give you an example. My next uh, my next novel, my next thriller, is the, is called The Rising. It'll be published in June, and it's a collaboration with the great Heather Graham, who is a bona fide. 50-time New York Times best-selling author. Mm-hmm. So, is that something I would have done if I if I was already a brand? Probably not. But it was an opportunity that I had um, with a friend whose work I greatly respect, who I knew we would be able to hit it out of the park, and we did. We wrote a, a book that is that is really really good. It's sci-fi. It's YA crossover. It's entirely different than what either of us had ever done. It's you know Tor's going to be bringing out with a huge marketing campaign, more attention than any of my books have ever gotten. So those are the opportunities you cultivate and look for um, to raise yourself above the norm. Because what I hope happens, John and Jeff, mm-hmm. is that what we will see is that the audience that flocks to the rising will carry over the following fall of 2016 to my Caitlin Strong books. Because it's been one thing we talked you know, about free books before, briefly. I think we might have been off the air. Um, or I know, I think we were, now that I think of it, we were on the air. And whether that actually yeah. giving free books away actually does anything. There, there's, there, there's conflicting data about that. What there is not conflicting data about is if an off, if a reader likes an author, no matter how many books that author publishes, and no matter how many different genres, their books are going to succeed because their fans are going to follow them. So that's what I hope happens from the rising into Strong Cold Dead, which is the next Caitlin Strong book. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Now hold on. I just got so so a quick follow up because the one thing that I've been pushing for the last couple of months because you brought this up early in your answer is writing quality books and getting quality product. And I've been pushing and pushing to try to tell people, you need to follow the publisher too, because the publisher could tell you a lot on whether or not the book has went through a process of, you know, going through the editing process, going through all of those things that you need to have that good book. And I think that that's where people are kind of losing it. They don't really understand that point of, if you see a Penguin book, you know it went through the process. If you see a Pungent book, you might not think it might not have went through the process. So I think that the publisher now is becoming extremely important in hopefully making the decision up for people when they say, so do I go with John Land, who's with Tor Forge, and, you know, or do I go with you know, uh, whoever else who's maybe with this publisher? And since your publisher is name recognition, that only helps you out more now. I, you know, I, I hope so, I, and I think that's true. The the thing about that is, is there are only when, when you get into the whole thing about about the whole business and how this works, there is only so many books a publisher can push every month. There are only so many titles they can get front store display space for, in in bookstores. There are only so many titles that they can buy ads for, and those books that they do that for, they've got to be reasonably certain they're going to make their money back. So. What you're suggesting, and it's an excellent point, is that before you can become someone who has an opportunity to convince the world to buy you, you have to convince your publisher that you are worthy of that. And you've got to convince them 
you know, or, or your work has to convince them. In my case, I've had a lot of ups and downs, as many writers have, and I think authors, non-brand authors like, like myself, and that's not a bad thing, by the way. There are probably only about 100 authors who are true brands, probably maybe even considerably less than 100. I've never tried to figure out how many there actually are. But it's easy to sell a branded author. Any publisher can do it. What's much more difficult is to build an author. And when you have economic downturns like we did in 2008 for a few years, it affects authors like me exponentially more than it affects the bigger time authors. If you and I'll give let me give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You go into airports air, where, where, which is was always my bread and butter, mass market. Airports and mall bookstores. Those were my two biggest markets for most of my career. Well, 5,000 mall bookstores, they're all gone. Now, yep. those mall bookstores used to take 10 to 12 of my paperbacks. That's 50 to 60,000 units that I've lost. Airports have redefined themselves because they're no longer stocked by local wholesalers. They're stocked by national wholesalers. So yep. if, if those wholesalers feel that they can sell a Lee Child or a James Patterson backlist title better than a John Land brand new mass market release, well, they're going to buy more Grisham, more Lee Child, more, you know, more Jim Patterson, more Clive Cussler, more Steve Barry, and less John Land. So now my airport sales were jeopardized by the fact that less airport outlets we're stocking my books. This is not something the publisher can affect. It's not their fault that 5,000 bookstores went away and that airport wholesaling changed. So what I have to do with, in concert with my publisher, working with them, is, is find new ways of defining myself. Now, to my publisher's credit, they're going to start publishing my mass markets now in the oversize, you know, that, that lo- the tall paperback size. And part of the reason they're doing that, first off, they've cut their mass market titles from six to eight a month. Sometimes they only bring out two or three mass market titles a month now. So they're saying we are going to treat John Land like he is a brand because when a wholesaler sees the tall paperbacks, it gives them an, uh, the impression that the book is more important than the traditional rack size paperbacks. That's the kind of things publishers do when when their backs are up against the wall or when they're trying to to build authors who have suffered in, in the climate. And I know you've got a lot of writers who listen to the show, so yeah. this is this is a good topic because what we're covering is the difficulties of launching in, in a of launching a, an author or building an author or continuing to build an author like in my case by traditional means because even if you want, even if if my company forge wanted to buy out the front store of every Barnes and Noble in the country Barnes and Noble isn't going to sell the front of the store to John Land not when they can sell it to a to someone you know who is going to open or debut at number 1 on the bestseller list they want a sure thing if they're giving up that f- that f- front store display space and discounting the book at thirty percent. So yeah. it is a it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. To be successful, 
You need front. You need this co-op. You need this front store display space. You need to be in airports. You need to be in train stations. You need to be in supermarkets. But to be in all those places, you've got to be a big time off. You can only get what you don't. You can only get it if you've already got it. And if you don't have it, you can't get it. It's like it's you know it's like going to the bank when you're broke and trying to get money. So the key, the people who stay in this business are the ones who find ways, as I have, to maintain their visibility and their viability. You stay relevant. I think stay relevant, those are two words you never hear in this business. But when I think about it, and I've never spoken those two words before, but if, if, you know, if an established writer who isn't a brand asked me now for two words, the, the first goal of what you have to do commercially as, a, as an author Stay relevant. Because if you don't stay relevant, nothing else you do matters. And the first way you stay relevant goes back to what I said before. You have to write great books. You have to have a great product to stay relevant. The rest is nothing else matters if you're writing crap. And if you write something that's great, then it's a matter of not how do we fool everybody, but how do we sell it? How do we get people to know how good this is? That's a great question. I'm gonna I'm gonna argue with you a minute here, though, John. Um, yeah, yeah, we get to have a contentious <laughs> battle. Yeah. Well, it's great for ratings. Be, first, on, no, first Jeff, of all, before you do that, before you do that, real quick, let me do this. I want to remind everybody that we are speaking here with author John Land. The latest book is called Strong Light of Day. Visit John without the H Landbooks.com for more information <laughs> on his website on all the books and everything else. Now that we got that out of the way, and if you guys haven't noticed, Jen, it's, you know, it's like 33 minutes in. John is staying the whole hour because that's how we roll here with John on the call. <laughs> we can't do it 30 minutes. We can't do it 30 I minutes. I want to get contentious. Let's get that's contentious. That's happen with John. We don't do 30 <laughs> minutes with John. We do 60 minutes. Well, first of all, I wanted to say that uh, Amazon just um, filed a lawsuit against those fake reviews yes, that have been popping did. up on their site. You mentioned that. So I said I was going to argue with you, John. Um, I would argue that if you put 50 pages of a book in front of me that did not have any reference to who wrote it, I could tell you in a heartbeat if it was Michael Conley, if it was Patterson, if it was Lee Child, if it was you. So does that mean you actually do have a brand or is that just your style? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, it, oh, my God. It's I think the so best, big the, all the, these great questions. The, I know. The <laughs> best answer to that question is I, I guess it is the fact that I, that, I ha, that I have a brand. And Caitlin Strong is a brand. And, uh, you know, these books do very, very well. I'm just not – they're not doing well enough. But my brand isn't big enough. It's not front store Barnes & Noble brand stuff. It's, right. You know, I am more a brand – based on how long I've been doing it and theoretically how consistently and how well I've been doing it. But I, I am frankly perceived to be far more successful than I actually am in reference to what we define, depending on how you define success. Um, you know, And if it's defined strictly by appearances on the New York Times bestseller list, which appears to be every author except in, in the world except me, uh, if you look at everybody, New York Times bestselling author. Who is this person? Never heard a single, never heard of them. They're New York Times bestselling author. I, I know. I've, I've seen that too. I've seen yeah, that. Yeah, you know. So, but, but, the, but, the, but the thing is, it is. 
the the thing about um, and I think there's a lot of readers who could identify authors based on those 50 pages uh, because we are every we are unique and it's a great compliment that that we're unique. Uh, I, I could think I could probably do it, maybe not with 50 authors, but 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 certainly with several. Um, you know, it's it's a matter of finding your comfort zone and giving bring, making the reader feel as comfortable reading what you've done as you were writing what you did. Interesting. Would you repeat that? that? I was, but no, I want to go. I want to. I want, I want, to, to, I want to repeat that. That's awesome. I don't okay, even remember what I said. Neither do I. We have to hit freaking rewind on the interview button, and they can. This is awesome. Okay, thank <laughs> but, you. Uh, you know what? I just thought of a question, and it kind of goes with the point when you were talking. Um, you know, because it is a business. This is a business to make money. You know, Barnes and Noble is a public company. They're in a business to make money. You know, Random House, Penguin, and all those things. They're in a business to make money. So my question is, besides Stephen King and Peter Straub, who basically were the two biggest authors that I can remember that ever collaborated that were huge names when they did a book together, do you think that publishers now, when you see so many collaborations now, like yourself with Heather and other people, are publishers doing that because they're trying to raise their top line more by putting somebody like, hey, Heather Graham is having another book with John Land. James Patterson is with Michael Lethbridge and, you know, all these other things. But they can throw that, I guess, top shelf name out there even further to raise their top line. That, well, of course, that, that's exactly why uh, the, you know, Clive Cussler is doing four books a year and Jim Patterson's doing 12 books a year. Uh, now, a lot of so, big-time authors... So then my question like, is, is, if it is that way, is that now um, hurting it when somebody like you does it with and people like, I'm so well, tired but, of all it, these collaborations? It, it's a great question, but there is a difference between a written with and a, a true collaboration. When you see the cover of The Rising, which, by the way, is phenomenal. I, I think, I, think mm -hmm. I sent it to Jeff. Um, yeah, it's very good. I love yeah, it. I, you know... Heather Graham and me, we're, we're the same size. She's above me where she belongs, but we're the same size. Our names are the same gotcha. size. It's a, it's a true collaboration. There is a huge difference between a true collaboration and what some people might call a hack job, where it's basically an outline provided by the big-time author like Jim Patterson to a, a writer who then follows his outline um, mm -hmm. to the letter. They're not creating anything. They're regurgitating what they've been given. In the case of Clive Cussler, one of his writers ultimately couldn't work with him anymore because he couldn't deal with the fact that Clive would change every or change so much of his books that there were parts he didn't even recognize when they were published. That's not going to happen with a true collaboration between two authors who are a 50-50 partner instead of a hired hand. You know, and, but, and now, by the way, but, but the I, would, I wouldn't is, mind one of those gigs because they pay really well. I know. Now, the funny thing is, is we all know the story behind the curtain because we're here. We see it. You know, we all know this. But fans don't know that because you'll read reviews on Tom Clancy and they'll be like, oh, my God, Clancy does it again. No, Clancy died. Clancy <laughs> did nothing. So it's like. I don't think yeah. that these people truly realize that when it says Tom Clancy, it says Grant Blackwood or Mark Greeny, Tom Clancy had nothing to do with it. But they still think, oh, 
Tom Clancy is still there. I mean, I listen to a bunch of people who talk about music, um, and they talk about Kiss, and they say, oh, yeah, I went to the Kiss concert. Ace Freely did well. Ace Freely hasn't played in Kiss for like 15 years. It's the character. <laughs> So and and you know fans, the thing you're also you're so, getting so at. Can fans I would understand that. Yeah, and and I some I won't mention names. It may be someone you know. One of these written with people had finished a book that he thought was was very very good. He submitted it and they was sent back and said, "You need to add another 150 pages to it." No, just because that's how long it needs to be because it's 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 what the audience for the named author was expecting. That's what right. the named author was delivering. Well. That's not creativity. Adding pages for the sake of adding pages is not anything to do with creative process. It's strictly, right. again, that's a hack job. Um, I actually think the last couple books by, by the Clancy collaborators uh, are, have been better because Clancy's dead. Because he, they, taking him out of the process made them better because he, you know, he, couldn't write, he couldn't write himself anymore. So what makes anyone think he could steer another writer in the right direction? Um, but one thing I would say about that, John, is anything that sells a lot of books is very, very good for the industry, which makes it very, very good for me. I love I agree with that when a book like – I don't care that Ghost Set a Watchman wasn't very good. What I care about is that it sold so many copies – it was great, and right. anything that's great for bookstores is great for John Land. I, I never bought a Harry Potter book in my life, but Harry Potter kept those those books would sell literally eight to ten million hardcovers in in the first week of sales. The first week of sales. So anytime a book becomes a phenom, Dan Brown, when you know doesn't do a lot of them, when he comes out, you know whether they're good or bad, whether you like them or not. If you listen to my show, you know what I feel. But go ahead. <laughs> but well, but you know, but you know, it's like what I like to say about the Da Vinci Code is I liked it a lot more when I read David Morell's version, um, and about right. three others that were basically the same book. But that's not relevant. What's relevant is Dan Brown is good for publishing, and that makes him good for all writers who are traditionally published. Right. All those all those kids who bought the first Harry Potter when they were ten or twelve. And now, what is it, 20 years maybe removed from the first book being published? Now they're 32, 33. Are they John Land fans? That's what we're hoping, that they love books so much that they're going to keep buying books because they love that experience. And I think that's well, what's important when those people grow up and those people are readers. You are, you are so right. And, I'll tell you, and let me go you one better. I think one of the one of the you're gonna, most – You're going to raise me? One of the, I'm, I'm going to raise you. I'm going to call that and raise you, raise you this. Shit, he's, he's One of the me. most interesting trends in publishing sales today is the decline of e-books after the explosion of a few years ago and the rise again of print books. And then the fact, a recent study I just tweeted about, I tweet a lot, at, at John D. Lance. I tweet yeah. a lot. And I tweeted this thing about 18 to 24-year-olds surveyed prefer hard copies over digital, two to one when it comes to books. When you go to a bookstore as, as often as I do to do events, and you see three, four, five-year-old kids walking around with a book in their hands, you know print isn't going anywhere. Yes, digital is great, but it's not going to be like the music business where basically the music business was destroyed by streaming. Well, here's the difference. You can't stream one chapter 
of a book, the way you can stream or you know you can download one song from an album. Basically, what the digital age did was it it allowed people to do what they always wanted to do with music, buy only yep. the songs they want. Whereas with books, it just created another delivery mechanism for people to enjoy them as much, if not more, and enjoy them more often. I don't begrudge digital, even though it's not for me, because people are buying me now, even though they don't intend to read me until a vacation six months from now. They're going to load me onto their Kindle, and I'm going to be the 30th book that they've got on the list. Maybe they'll read me quicker. But the fact is, a book they would never have bought in print until they were ready to read it. They now load onto their Kindle so they don't forget it because they know it's going to be there when they want to read it. So I think that that books that digital has enhanced the world of of of, of publishing. It so much of digital has led to the greatest opportunities that I've had in the last few years. I owe digital for my only my, my appearance on the USA Today bestseller list was was digital. Um, uh, you know when, when we did a huge promotion for Strong Enough to Die. The first book in the Caitlin Strong series, you know, a, a month before Strong Light of Day was released, it was digital that went through the roof. In one day, we sold four, you know, something like three. One weekend, we sold almost three thousand copies, all digital. So yeah. part of this new paradigm is learning to work within its limitations and take advantage of its constraints. Um, you know, you always there's always going to be print books. There are always going to be hardcover books. Mass market, I'm I'm a lot more scared about, which is of course, what, as I mentioned before, that I did my first 13 books as mass market originals. The greatest success in my career were the 1980s, when I was writing a book a year and selling between 200,000 and 250,000, doing absolutely nothing, because there were so many places that were selling my books. And they were selling them so well. And I was with Random House then that had, had figured out a way to market what I was writing. Um, you those, had displays in front of the stores. I remember I that. Had, but the stores where I had displays are gone. Exactly. And the, and the fact and the, is it's not, yep. it's not that Forge isn't doing everything they possibly can. Is that there's less that they can do given the realities of, of publishing today. And if you cling to the past, you become a victim of it, as opposed to redefining yourself based on the realities of the present and where the business is going in the future. You know, you've got to be willing to change. You've got to be willing to adapt, because not everybody is going to get on Fox News to promote their books. You're not going to get on Bill. Not everyone's getting on Bill O'Reilly or the Today Show or or anything else that's going to create that velocity on Amazon. Um, you know, John, you've had a couple books in in the past couple mm-hmm. weeks for, for a month or so for Suspense Magazine that have had phenomenal success on Amazon because Amazon chose to promote them. They they, yep. they did for your books for your Suspense publishing books. Deservedly so, because they see starts off, the books have to be good or they wouldn't do it. But they did right. for your books, your company's books, the equivalent of what was done for me in the 80s with front store display space. Front store, The new front store display space is now a banner ad on Amazon. It's an email from Amazon to 30 million, of their, uh, uh, 30 million people in a morning 
buy this book at two ninety nine or, or whatever the reduced price is. It's a book right. club promotion in in conjunction with a bunch of other things that create in the old days velocity of sales was defined a different way. Uh interestingly enough you had less time. You know, because your book was on display for four weeks and then it was pulled and somebody else was put, took your slot. That's it, you're done. Now That's it. because of digital you you have a whole other way to be discovered in your books. I said I said that before. So we've got to embrace what's better about today's publishing industry, and deal with what's not as great. But I happen to think I got to tell you, if I sound overly optimistic, it's my nature. But when you really weigh life in publishing as a zero sum game, um, and I believe everything comes down to game theory, if you view everything in zero sum game, we are way ahead of not only where we were three or four years ago when the economy collapsed, but I think we're getting close to being way ahead of where we were, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. So in other words, there's hope that there, there's hope for this industry and there's hope for writers. Well, um, I have to ask you, cause um, I haven't had a chance to get your opinion on this, Steve Hamilton and what he did, and, and do you remember what he did? Explain, explain a uh, little sorry. first. Maybe um, Steve know. Hamilton had a contract with the publisher and was promised all these various things that they were going to do promotion-wise, and he turned around and canceled the contract and paid his money back to them, saying that um, they basically were lying and they weren't going to do those things. And the book had already been out to reviewers and everything else, and the book was canceled. And then the next day, he got bought by another publisher. So are you, uh, you're asking me what do I think about doing what he did? Um, I'm curious what you think about what he did, and also do you think, I guess, is that effective strategy, especially with the stuff we've just talked about? I think I'd have to know how well his book did with the, with the, with the other publisher that picked it up. I mean, there um, are it's there coming are out numerous, next May. There there are numerous examples of very successful authors at one time or another in their careers who for who gave up on traditional publishing and moved on to, to to publish directly with Amazon, either on their own, but in most cases through Amazon Publishing. Um, even though their books don't get the new, they can't be New York Times bestsellers because of the prejudice against Amazon. They can't, they aren't going to get reviewed the way they would if they were traditionally published. Uh, you know, so I think that there are, you, you have to find the model as an author that works best for you. But I think in Steve Hamilton's case, let's talk about that directly. What that says to me is Steve Hamilton had no relationship with the, with the publisher that he ultimately left on very bad terms. If this was going on, it, it, it's, it's about a relationship that had – there's a lot more to the story than just the facts because it's clearly something that the publisher didn't come through on but, but never they – were, they weren't in a room discussing what they could do. There, were, there wasn't communication. And he, the point I want to raise is wherever you go and however you choose your vehicle of delivery for your books – if this is a business entirely or not to a great extent about relationships, who you get to know, who you help, who helps you. And if you understand that, if you understand that you are in business to work with your publisher, not to sit back and wait for them to do everything for you. If you understand it is a team effort, you cannot expect to be treated like Lee Child if you do not have Lee Child sales. 
You are not going to get that kind of coverage, no matter what you're promised. And if a publisher says, we're going to do this, 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 and this, and it's like I said before, you can go to Barnes & Noble and say, we're, we're going to, you, can, you can honestly want, if you're a publisher, to make a book a, a bestseller. You can't force Barnes & Noble to, or the indies to take the books. If they don't get a good read, if they don't like the cover, um, you know how many covers have been changed because Barnes & Noble didn't like them? But if, if you don't change the cover and Barnes & Noble says, hey, we don't like the cover, we're not buying the book. Well, if you're Steve Hamilton, that happened to you. Um, you got screwed because of a bad cover or because of bad communication. But it all goes to the relationship that you have forged with your publisher. In my case, no pun intended, being that I'm with Forge Books. <laughs> um, in my case, what has, what has given me a, a, a lifeline is the fact that my publisher has always believed in me and has never stopped working to make our mutual dreams come true. And I think you writers have to look at things as a team effort. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a football guy, and I believe I see how football works, and I see how it's, it is a total team effort from the coaches to the defense to the offense, the special teams. Everybody's going to be in sync. Everybody's going to be in, in concert with each other. Publishing is the same thing. Strong light of day cannot succeed without the publisher's support and me doing everything I can to support the book and therefore the publisher. They know how hard I work. They yep. know. So I end up getting a lot of perks that a lot of other authors don't get. A lot of authors who are bigger, who sell more than me, perhaps, who aren't getting nearly as much that, as, as I get because they, the publisher believes in me. They, and again, the books are, they love the books, and they can see where the potential is. Because, you know, I'll, and I'll give you a perfect example. Ender's Game, Orson Scott Card, has been, of the pa- in the past two years, it has only been off the New York Times bestseller list for like six or seven weeks. The book was published in 85. Here's my point. You never know when something is going to go viral and catch fire. So often, it's not the first book. It might not even be the fifth or sixth book. Two examples that I think are perfect here. The Craig Johnston Longmire mysteries were successful at about the level that I'm successful. And then there was a television show, and now he's a New York Times best-selling author, a legitimate number six or number seven, because the television show has helped build out his brand. Yeah. Ian Fleming was basically unknown in this country until, of course, the movie Dr. No, but what really turned his books on fire was when John F. Kennedy was going to Camp David for the weekend, and he was holding a book in his hand, and a reporter shouted, Mr. President, what are you reading? And he held up Goldfinger. And if if Amazon had been around on that day, an hour later, Amazon rankings, Goldfinger would have been number one. There's Amazon no went down. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, another thing, Elmore Leonard, who is now revered as the greatest crime writer in history, was a mid-list successful author. He'd had some bestsellers, some books that didn't work, some books that did work. And then Stephen King, on the front page review of, I think it was La Brava in the New York Times, called in the front page review, New York Times book review, the greatest crime writer alive today. You can't plan for those kind of viral events. A president holding a book up, you know, uh, something like that happening. 
you know, Anderson Cooper or Oprah, the Oprah book, you know, somebody just, you have to just work as hard as you can and write the best book you can so you have the opportunity for that to happen. That's the best you can do. Well, I'll tell you what, John, I mean, it's been excellent advice. And if any authors, of course, have been listening, hopefully they've taken into account the advice and the things that they need to do because, Whenever I tell any of the authors, and I always tell them this, I say, as soon as you write the end, that's technically only the beginning. The easy part is writing the book. The hard part, getting people to buy the book and read the book. But I will say this, is that if people don't go out now and go get Strong Light of Day by John Land <laughs> and check it out, then you're, then you're not a thriller reader because you are an author in the thriller genre that people need to have focus on and read because you offer that different character, that different perspective than other thriller authors, other thriller books, and I and that's what people that's and that's what people need in their library. You need to have that diversity. So we want to thank you for staying true to yourself and keeping that diversity because it's very very difficult and in today's day and age to do that, and it's more easy when they keep trying to follow trends. Of course, there was 85,000 freaking zombie and vampire books, and then they got all saturated, and people stopped doing that. So I want to thank you, and of course, Jeff and I want to thank you so much for coming on, because the hour's up, man. We've killed it. I'm a huge fan. I love this. We love talking to you. This is because there's just so much insight, and there's so much information that people need to go back and re-listen to this interview and really, really listen to what you're saying because you're in it, you're in the trenches, and you're seeing it every single day, and you're living it. And I think that's you know, what people really need to realize. Let me just—I know we're we're down on time. Let me sum it all up with a, one of my favorite lines in the history of film from The Godfather Two: "Hyman Roth to Michael Corleone, Michael, this is the business we have chosen. In other words, the, if you're going to go into this business, if you want to be a writer, and you choose to be a writer." This is going to become your life, and you mm-hmm. chose it. And it's going um, to consume your life <laughs> also. In a good way. Yes. Well, John, like always, we want to thank you again so much for coming on. You can come on anytime you want, and we can just talk and bullshit about Then you have to be about your books. It can be about anything, because we can all talk and say the word blue and talk for an hour. You know what? Alone, I've got so, so many books coming out between my 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 second nonfiction book, which comes out in March, uh, which is called Takedown, and then The Rising coming out. <laughs> you, we're not going to have to look for opportunities for me to come on. <laughs> no. But you know what? The other good thing, people, is you did write a book about Whitey Bulger. Black Mass was out. Check out John Land's book with Mr. Fitzgerald, who, well, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later. But that's another qu- book. That, that's, that's a whole other show. But you'll see when you see that library of yours, you're going to see that book. But we got left to a minute now, John, so we're going to take it out. JohnLandBooks.com. John, thank you so much for coming on. And, again, we want to, you know, can't, can't thank you enough. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. All right. So, Jeff, until next time, two more weeks, we'll see you all real soon, all right? All right. All take right. care. Bye, everybody. Keep reading.